This is a production of Women's Voices, a volunteer organization recording women's speeches, essays, and literary texts for the purpose of education and broader access to the public. I'm talking today with Caroline Norma, author of The Japanese Comfort Women and Sexual Slavery During the China and Pacific Wars. Caroline is a lecturer in the School of Global, Urban, and Social Studies and Planning at RMIT University and a member of the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women Australia. Hey, Caroline. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here and to be able to talk about this topic uh, in Asia. It's very important. <laughs> okay. So to begin with, for any listeners who may not be aware, can you describe what is meant by the comfort women system? Yes, this is a euphemism that refers to military prostitution, but it's quite a useful euphemism because it refers specifically to the system of military prostitution that the Japanese military during uh, the Second World War, which started in Asia in 1937, uh, rolled out with the support of the Japanese government, the Japanese bureaucracy um, in all over Asia, but mostly in the homelands and in the colonies. So the word in Japanese for comfort is a word that gets used or used to be used in the pre-war uh, to refer to prostitution in euphemistic terms. But it's a word that's shared, uh, the word comfort in Japanese in referring to the military prostitution system is also shared in its reference to, there's a post-war prostitution system that it also refers to, and it also refers to a system of military brothels that existed in Japan during the war as well. Just the word is used in a slightly different combination with another couple of words, but that word appears across different prostitution systems. So. I, and it's a euphemism, which makes it offensive because it's attempting to cover up the reality of prostitution as a form of sexual violence. But I do still use the word um, because I think for the discussion that I'll talk about in the book, um, I'm keen to make sure that military prostitution is understood in the context of other prostitution systems and particularly those of Japan. So I'll, yeah, I tend to use the word comfort system just for that purpose. In your book, you describe some of the conditions that existed leading up to the military enslavement of women during the war. Could you describe what some of those situations and conditions were? The Japanese military prostitution system during the Second World War, which was in Asia from 1937 to 1945, is seen by historians as having targeted 200,000 victims um, throughout Southeast Asia, East Asia, some of the Pacific Islands, including Papua New Guinea, uh, the Japan homelands itself and other places. And these numbers are likely to be at the higher end of 200,000 rather than lo the lower end in my view, because we don't yet have much historical uh, information about the system operating in China, which is where it operated most uh, intensively. But uh, that aside, that's that's what the uh, general view of the Japanese military comfort women system was, that it was a series of brothels all throughout Asia and the Pacific uh, that held women in the worst possible conditions for the mass prostitution by Japanese troops. And that is true. All of those um, widely understood facts of the system are true. 
but the system's not often placed within its um, pre-war and wartime context, which is of uh, large-scale prostitution systems operating in Japan itself, uh, civilian prostitution systems, and also uh, the same prostitution systems operating before the war in Japan's colonies, which was Korea and Taiwan and uh, parts of China before the war. So I try to place the military system in there in its pre-war and civilian context, and I suggest that its causes and its origins and its, op its sort of model of operation comes from this uh, civilian context rather than uh, anything arising out of militarism or anything arising out of wartime. And you kind of describe this happening during the Taisho era, is that right? Yeah, so in Japan, uh, they still use and did use uh, imperially named time periods uh, for history. And so the Taisho era is between 1912 and 1926. Um, and this was, and this is widely known as a, per a period in Japanese history that was uh, peaceful and progressive and uh, developed liberal strains of society. So I focus on the individual rather than the kind of feudal family or, or those kind of um, traditional structures of society. And of course, we're talking about Japan, so we're not talking about um, Western liberalism, but nonetheless, there, there were liberal uh, features of this period. Uh, parliamentary democracy uh, arose, for example, for and suffrage for some small parts of the population. But um, with this liberalism, and this was very much like the Western countries, probably more than other aspects, was the development of uh, the trading, industrialized systems of the sexual trading of women and girls. Um, and so prostitution, it was still an urban, relatively elite industry for male consumers, but it did, there was some development in the countryside too, but most importantly, it became, prostitution during this period became a practice of um, aspirational men. It was a, a practice where even men in the countryside would aspire to prostitute women uh, because that's what elite men were doing. That's what men who had moved to the cities and had moved up in the world during this period uh, were able to do. And so prostitution became an aspirationalist uh, activity of men. Um, and plus the, the, this, the industry itself burgeoned massively during this period. And so my books, I, in the book, I suggest that the origins of the military prostitution system can be seen in this period because as the, uh, as the military uh, took up prostitution as an institution or as, a, as part of its institution itself, it used it in a useful way to encourage morale among troops, to encourage troops to aspire to promote themselves through the ranks and therefore um, be good soldiers and be compliant and, and placated. So prostitution in, in men's society has a useful and um, productive effect for their, their endeavours and their activities, especially in militarism. But I think a, a lot of people see because the comfort women system was so heinous, they see it as a, there's not much of analysis of it as a useful and productive 
part of men's institutions that encourage um, cohesion among groups of men, cooperation, and enhance morale. I mean, it's, it's awful to say that about women's sexual enslavement, but from my analysis, that's the function it was serving uh, for the Japanese military in the war. You talk a little bit about the historical bias by some researchers and academics when discussing this issue. Can you describe why you think that might be? Great question. Um, the bias relates to the omission of prostituted victims from uh, descriptions of the military prostitution system uh, that the Japanese military operated during the Second World War. So particularly victims of Japanese nationality were often trafficked out of either Japanese homeland sex industry, which was massive by the time of the war, or the industries of the colonies, so Korea and Taiwan particularly. Um, and these were also Korean women were trafficked out of the sex industries in the colonies as well. Uh, but the standard historical narrative we have of the sexual slavery system is that it interned women and girls who were trafficked from countryside areas as underage so-called virgins um, and who were, who were impoverished and colonized, particularly in the Korean Peninsula and Manchuria. And that's where the victims came from. And then in Southeast Asia, people talk about local Indonesian girls, for example, being pulled off the street. And all of these facts are right and true. Uh, and they, that they were a major population of victims in, in all the cases I just mentioned. Who were not mentioned though, are the sex industry trafficked victims. So the prostituted, women and girls who were then re-prostituted in the military system and particularly the ones of Japanese nationality. Even though these ones of Japanese nationality were the first victims to be trafficked into the system and it was on their backs that the system was actually developed and expanded and refined because they were the first population. Um, and the theory I use to explain what's happened here is Andrea Dworkin's scapegoat theory. So a book that she wrote in two, uh, published in 2000 um, that talks about in, in that book, she talks about uh, victims of concentration camps and Auschwitz specifically, uh, the first victims having been prostituted women who were targeted specifically on that basis and brought in uh, to um, the death camps and used in a specific way in the death camps to, to uh, bribe uh, inmates uh, and to create divisions among inmates and various things. She talks about the role of prostituted women in the death camps. And in the same way, I talk too about the fact that prostituted women, particularly of Japanese nationality, were the first victims of the military comfort stations. They've been the ignored victims uh, for uh, decades since the justice movement emerged in the early 1990s. And Japanese feminists today, advocates of the uh, former comfort women and advocates for redress and justice for the former comfort women, they today um, admit quite openly and talk about it and discuss the fact that they never managed to advocate on behalf of a Japanese victim and see justice for her. So no court cases were brought on behalf of Japanese victims, even though 16 were brought on behalf of women of other nationalities. And, and of course, that's not to detract from other women of other nationalities being properly represented and um, having advocates advocate on their behalf. It's not that, it's that 
the, the uh, advocates today, particularly in Japan, obviously, talk about, so what was it that stopped us from finding the victims of Japanese nationality and then advocating on their behalf? And of course, they come to the same conclusions that I come to in the book, that this really was about prostitution, that prostitution is an institution that erases women's victimhood, both in the present, as we know, um, prostituted women are left out of all of the mainstream domestic violence campaigns or any women's movements uh, we find all over the Western world. Um, and they are also left out of historical campaigning, in particular, in the case of the uh, Japanese military uh, brothels and military sexual enslavement system. They are overlooked victims, even though they were quite well represented victims. And of course, we know why that is. And that's because of uh, the effect of prostitution as one of male fun and work and, in, and um, entertainment. I mean, they, they can't, people do not see prostitution as a form of sexual violence. And so the minute the prostitution is involved, then that erases women's vic victimization. So they were seen to be making a kind of a choice about what they were doing then. Exactly, exactly. On that note, you've mentioned that there were never any court cases for the Japanese women who were trafficked. So what would usually happen to them after the war? Yeah, we have very little information about what happened to them because the activists allowed them to be overlooked. Um, the ones we know about, for example, there's a small piece of research I found that talked about a Japanese woman having coming back from the Chinese mainland, back to Japan to a what was called back then kind of a sanatorium for people, um, you know, who had infectious diseases. And a nurse wrote an account about having looked after a Japanese woman who'd come back from a comfort station uh, in the late stages of, um, I think it might've been syphilis. Uh, she was on her deathbed by the time she got to the sanatorium and talked about looking after her and the fact that the woman was tormented by her illness, but it was the first time in her life that she wasn't tormented by the sexual demands of men. And that's, that's the nurse's words. I mean, she wasn't particularly an activist or campaigner, but she reflects on her having taken care of this uh, returnee Japanese woman from a comfort station. Um, others, there is an account of one woman called Shirota Suzuko uh, that uh, advocates, that this, that's a, a um, pseudonym, but advocates do know of her and they did know of her in the uh, late 80s and, and early 1990s because this Japanese woman, victim and survivor, um, actually spoke about her experience and uh, even uh, appeared on a radio show in Japan and spoke about her experience and raised funds for a memorial statue which exists uh, in, uh, still exists today in Japan. Uh, she lived her final years in a Christian-run uh, convalescence home for formerly, I think mostly for formerly prostituted women, but it was probably kind of a, a facility for you know, elderly women survivors of various um, violence and sexual violence. But um, she she wasn't, so she's known about, and her, her story is reasonably well documented in a book, uh, but she wasn't, still wasn't taken up by advocates to any great extent back in that time, even though advocates did know about her and there were certainly some feminists in Japan who did work with her and it's, there's not been a complete um, abandonment of 
prostitution survivors and Japanese survivors of military sexual slavery, but yet Shirota Suzuko was a very rare case uh, that we uh, have. And that the feature of her case and the feature of the cases that we do know about of Japanese survivors who came back and, and lived um, were that they went into prostitution in the post-war to be used by American occupying men. And that's a very common feature of many stories, even Korean survivors too, because obviously Korea and Japan were colonized by Americans at the same time. Um, and that's a, it's a massive feature. So they came back impoverished, sick, having very weak social connections um, and obviously in massive amounts of trauma. And they just really had no vehicle to live in post-war society beyond you know, the various pimps and traffickers that were sort of inevitably surrounded them and you know, funneled them into the post-war sex industry. And it's a very common story prostituted women it doesn't I mean that that's the common that's the feature of the military prostitution system that the victims end up having life histories exactly the same as we hear for women in civilian systems of prostitution I mean they, they can't get out of it they are reused and reused they're in trauma they're extremely injured and sick all of these features of, of survivors of the military system are exactly the same as what we hear for for women in even society today that have come out of the sex industry. So, and that was the exact same thing for, for Jap Japanese victims as well. You mentioned that there were some circumstances that were different depending on nationality and some certain theories as to why it seems Korean women were overly represented in the system. Can you explain more about that? The, that's exactly right. Um, so historians will almost always say that Korean women were overrepresented. It's likely to be true. To, it's likely that they were certainly heavily represented. And the main reason for that was that uh, Japan colonized the country, obviously, uh, formally from 1910, but informally from uh, the turn of the century, and developed a massive sex industry on the Korean Peninsula to cater to deployed Japanese troops who were all over the peninsula and uh, into China during by that stage in history. Uh, so there was a, they were a pool of victims ready and waiting to be re-trafficked into the military system. They were already on the peninsula, which is sort of convenient logistically for the Japanese military whose campaigns are all conducted uh, in China in the in the first stages. Uh, so geographically they were in the right place. Uh, once you've got a pool of women sitting in the sex industry, obviously the only thing you need to do is buy them off their pimps and their brothel owners. Uh, in some cases the Japanese military were so enmeshed with the colonial sex industry of the peninsula that they just simply arranged with the pimps to convert the brothels into uh, comfort stations um, or else they got the pimps to drag all of their women out to uh, the various uh, garrisons and set reset up their civilian brothels as comfort stations in military areas. Um, so logistically, like it makes absolute sense that Korean women were heavily represented among victims because of this pre-existing pre-war sex industry that was so large. Um, so that's definitely the case. Um, I wouldn't say that Korean victims were the highest number necessarily, um, which I know everyone does say. 
just because we have to remember that, don't forget, of course, the revolution occurred in China from 1949. And so we have a, a very a, a number of decades there where all of that information was lost historically um, in terms of, it's coming back now because there's uh, researchers and the government is supporting research in this area and there's various things being done to rediscover uh, uh, what happened in China in terms of the sexual victimization of women during the war. But of course, most of the Japanese military operations were conducted on the Chinese mainland. So J Chinese victims were really accessible to the Japanese military. So, but that's, that's not my area of expertise and just to put that aside. But um, yeah, so the main point is that uh, my, my point at least, my view would be that you are going to see over-representative uh, numbers of victims when it comes to military sexual slavery, which still takes place in wars today, as we know. If you've got pools of women sitting in sex industries that are logistically accessible or are col uh, sitting in colonised societies or are sitting in the home societies of the perpetrating male militaries, uh, just by virtue of the fact that once you've got women in the sex industry, those women have effectively lost all protections. I mean, they are, they are living and they are uh, existing and traded at the behest of their pimps mostly. And this is talking about even in uh, contemporary sex industries, that's just the reality of what happens when you're in a sex industry. You, you generally are able to be traded quite freely by traffickers and pimps and militaries can take advantage of this fact. And so it's gonna be those populations that you're gonna see at least become the first victims of military sexual slavery, even if thereafter, there's other pools of women and populations of women who get caught up in the same system because they've developed it uh, on the basis of the existing uh, women victims in the sex industry. Coming back to the creation of the sex industry before the war, I wonder what role you think industrialization played in that? Yeah, uh, so the that's right. Um, Japan's modern period was from about 1880s, uh, from that, that time, uh, period of time. Um, and that's seen as a time when modernization, if not industrialization, uh, began. And it did, it did occur in terms of uh, urbanization, industry, um, military development, uh, those features we understand uh, come with industrialization. Uh, globalization to some extent uh, during that time, of course, they, they started to become an imperial power. To the extent that industrialization uh, historically brought the intensification and development of, of capitalism, uh, and of course with capitalism comes imperialism, uh, and so definitely imperialism and colonization of the Korean Peninsula, for example, was directly connected to uh, the ability of the Japanese military to then, once perpetrating war on the mainland, to have access to uh, victims to organize its military prostitution system. If they hadn't had that pool of women already on the peninsula, and it's not just the women either, it was access to traffickers and pimps who'd been working that area and they were most, mainly they were often Japanese traffickers and pimps by the way they'd been in that area for well let's see by the time of the war they'd been there nearly 20 years um, so very uh, definite trafficking systems had developed techniques capital had built up among the pimps and traffickers 
uh, connections with military men, because the military had already been there, even though it wasn't perpetrating the Second World War there yet. Um, it already been there for a long time. So those relationships between the, the military and the uh, colonising settlers had built up. And I think if that whole colonisation hadn't occurred decades before the war, then it would have been much more difficult for the Japanese military to develop its sexual slavery system. Uh, so if, yeah, the word industrialization, I know it gets connected to, to prostitution uh, very much. Sheila Jeffries's book, um, The Industrialized Vagina or whatever it was called, um, sort of has that effect as well. And I think she's, but, but I think we can be more specific as feminists and talk about, is it globalization that, that is sort of opening up channels for female sexual trading or is it the intensification of capital that's allowing that to happen or we can sort of probably um, talk more specifically about uh, what it was exactly that uh, is allowing um, more intensified uh, sex trading of women and girls and for the war I think the first thing yeah I would point to is the ability yeah that the colonization of the peninsula that and then the development of the sex industry on the on the peninsula that was crucial I think yes. So Caroline, you also do abolitionist work currently, and I wonder if you see any parallels between how the historical bias portrayed Japanese women as choosing to be in this system, as compared with what feminists are facing today with the rhetoric of choice in prostitution? Yeah, this is the major barrier I think we face to contracting the size of the world's sex industry so that in times of war, and we know that obviously capitalist countries are perpetrating war all the time, so we're at constant risk of replicating the exact same situation that happened in the Japanese military during the Second World War um, because we continue to retain massive sex industries within so-called peacetime societies. Um, the link uh, for contemporary society, I think, resides in the large sex industries that uh, the, particularly the Western capitalist countries are retaining within their borders. So the minute that war happens again, which inevitably it will, uh, because of capitalist societies needing war uh, as a, a mechanism within their um, economies, um, that we'll see uh, the same thing happened again that happened during the Second World War with the Japanese military, whereby uh, women will be trafficked out uh, for, for the purpose of prostitution uh, on the battlefield in garrison areas. And the reason is for that is that the large sex industries that are retained in their borders, as you say, are retained on the basis of women's choice and free will. And so just like uh, the Second World War with the Japanese victims, when women are trafficked into battlefield areas, it will be entirely on the basis of their choice. It'll be um, migration for uh, military sex work, all of these existing um, defences and excuses uh, are already established in peacetime society that will uh, entirely facilitate the same type of uh, system of military trafficking that happened during the Second World War, particularly in Japan's case, uh, because Japan's a unique country that trades its own women and girls, particularly uh, in the sex industry, um, different from countries abroad that traffic in large numbers of women 
from poor countries. In Japan, uh, much of the trafficking goes on within its borders. And so there's uh, a very high levels of blame of local women um, that they're choosing it, they're greedy for Louis Vuitton bags, um, that they, uh, that the sex industry is not so bad because it's a, a vehicle to, you know, a career in entertainment, all those kind of excuses. And the reason these excuses circulate so strongly, I think, is because there's no um, barrier of race to go beyond. So in Western countries, it's sometimes hard for people to excuse the sex industry when they see the large number of foreign women who can't speak the local language, who have obviously been trafficked into the industry uh, and, and come from poor countries. Sometimes those kind of features make it harder for people to defend the industries uh, within capitalist Western countries. Uh, but in Japan, there's no such um, help. There's no such um, assistance given by this problem about race and poverty because the the women in it are local women and that's not to say that the local women and girls in the industry aren't impoverished aren't of a status that's so low that uh, their their human rights are not even considered let alone um, upheld um, so all of those features are exactly the same in japan except that uh, it's yeah it's a, it's a local sex, sex industry that's ripe for exploitation in the instance of war and conflict and I can't see any barrier existing uh, now that would stop the system uh, redeveloping again in a future time of war just as it happened in the Second World War. Nothing's changed. And I understand you've gotten some pushback for this, right? Is there also that rhetoric of choice that's popular in the West um, occurring in Japan these days? There is uh, very much uh, defences of prostitution in Japan. Those defences are growing on the sex work side, but at the moment they're more likely to uh, exist on the uh, side of the neoliberal, we're all responsible for our own financial well-being. We all uh, can use any aspect of our bodies or our personalities or our um, resources to make money and should do so. Uh, welfare is a shameful thing. All of those kind of neoliberal um, ideas circulate probably even more heavily in Japan uh, than in other countries now. And so they place all the blame on women in the sex industry uh, as having not been uh, willing and able to do other work and um, for uh, inevitably chasing the easiest possible money in the easiest possible way. So that kind of framing um, excuses a lot. Uh, of the industry. Um, in terms of pushback from my perspective, yes, the pushback has come in the my um, argument that prostitution and the sex industry featured centrally in the military system and that uh, military sexual slavery does not arise as a feature of war and militarism, but rather arises uh, from civilian peacetime society and is just made use of by militaries in times of war. So the problem with that argument from the perspective of the liberal historians is that as much as possible, they want to say that the so-called comfort women were not prostitutes, uh, that they were trafficking victims and victims of sexual slavery, and that made them fundamentally distinguishable from prostitutes, and therefore they are deserving of sympathy and remedy and justice. 
as opposed to prostitutes who are entirely in an entirely different category and shouldn't even be thought about, let alone brought into the conversation about uh, this history. And so not only did I suggest that all of the so-called comfort women were prostituted, um, and prostitution is obviously never an identity of anyone, um, it's, it's something that's done to women. So all the victims were prostituted. Not only did I say that, but I suggested that uh, the existence of the sex industry was the um, fundamental defining precondition for the emergence of the military sexual slavery system. Uh, whereas liberal historians want to separate those two parts of history out entirely. So they acknowledge the existence of the sex industry in Japanese history, but they characterize it as one of geishas and courtesans and um, the arts and high culture, um, but my book says all of those things, including geisha, were wholly and solely, wholly um, and centrally part of the military sexual slavery system. For example, um, the, some of the comfort stations in the, in the garrison areas, particularly in the cities like Shanghai, were set up like geisha houses. So it wasn't just that they were set up like brothels. In addition to that, for the officers, they were set up like geisha houses with all the, they, they forced these comfort women of different nationalities, they weren't even Japanese, they forced them to sing and play instruments and dance like so-called geisha. Um, and the, this was entirely what they were doing back in Japan. So suddenly these middle class, well, middle class or middling officers got to enjoy the so-called geisha culture that they'd seen their elite male rulers enjoy back in the homeland, but come to, you know, come to mainland China in the war, in the military and they could enjoy those things that they'd seen only elite men back in Japan enjoy in the form of comfort stations were decked out like geisha venues. Um, so there's nothing, there's nothing defensible about geisha in peacetime Japan as much as people like to romanticize and think it's, it's a form of the arts. Not, not, it wasn't a form of the arts when it was transferred to the military system, it was made great use of and as a prostitution system. Um, and that shows, I think that these institutions of peacetime civilian society, as much as they might be romanticized, we see their true colors when it comes to things like war and men are away from their homelands, away from their families and anyone who knows them in foreign countries. And that's when we really see what the real meaning of those institutions were. And that was exactly the same for the geisha system, I think, when it came to the Japanese military. That reminds me of that quote um, by Andrea Dworkin, if you want a definition of what a coward is, it's needing to push a whole class of people down so that you can walk on top of them. Yeah, and prostitution allows men to do that, I think. It's an easy, it's a cheap, I mean, they, 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 they accompany it, it with all the expensive alcohol and food, well, expensive in relative terms um, during that time, but women are cheaper than that, and they can give them they can give themselves greater status and boost their own little statuses relative to each other via these systems. I think men we see men doing that all the time. You have I think we we abhor prostitution and we know it to be slavery and horror. But I think when we analyse it, we could do with leaving those kind of analyses at the door and see it in the way men see it and experience it in order to understand the function that prostitution is playing within their, their you know, relations with each other, because that's why it exists. It exists for their relations. And we don't, we don't exist in men's world. We're only as you know, vehicles to 
their their societies and their relations. Um, so I think, yeah, um, that's right. Dawkins is just so right on that point, as always. Thank you very much, Caroline. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, my pleasure. Your book is really powerful and informative, and I would recommend anyone who's interested in this topic to check it out. Oh, thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk. Once more, the title of the book is The Japanese Comfort Women and Sexual Slavery During the China and Pacific Wars. Caroline Norma can be found on Twitter at CarolineNorma76. And for more content like this, you can follow me on Twitter at WomenReadWomen. Women.